Welcome, one and all, to Boss Science, a podcast where I interview wicked smart people to learn all about the latest and greatest scientific research going on in Boston. I'm your host, the wonderful Gray Singles, and today's episode is part two of Boss Science's first ever two-part episode. If you can't get enough of the awesome nanotechnology we talked about in part one, you're in luck, because today we talked to Professor Thomas Webster, the director of the Webster Nanomedicine Lab at Northeastern University, who spent over 20 years working in the field of nanomedicine. Professor Webster will tell us all about the amazing work he's developed over the years, like nano-featured titanium implants that enhance bone repair, as well as telling us what he's working on today and what he hopes to work on in the future. From implantable sensors that bring healthcare home with the patient, to gold nanoparticles and self-assembled nanomaterials that can be used to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. This lab really has it all. So, are you guys ready to learn about some boss-ass science? Welcome to the show. Hey listeners, long time no see, no speak, long time no listen. I'm not too sure what the podcast lingo is, but I know it's been a while, and I want to thank you for your patience Well, it took me just years to post this episode. If you've ever moved apartments before while also working 50 plus hours a week, you can understand how all your free time just disappears. But that's all in the past, and I'm thrilled you are still here to listen to part two of Boss Science's first ever two-part episode. So if you're just tuning in for the first time, well, first of all, hello, welcome, thank you for listening. Second of all, you might want to hit pause on this episode and jump back one so you can listen to part one of Nature Meets Nanomedicine before you continue. In part one, we got a wonderful introduction into nanotechnology, thanks to yours truly, where I answered all sorts of questions about the field, like how tall is Danny DeVito in nanometers? How did 13th century blacksmiths use carbon nanotubes to make steel blades? Or even how our sunscreen has been made better using nanoparticles? Crazy, right? But the best of our part one episode came when I got to talk to PhD student David Medina from the Webster Nanomedicine Lab at Northeastern University. We learned all about David's amazing research into green nanotechnology, where he works to make nanotechnology safer and more sustainable. Like by finding ways to use everyday groceries like milk and fruit to make nanoparticles. He's even used actual living bacteria cells to make nanoparticles, and he's used these nanoparticles to fight bacterial infection. Absolutely wild. This little summary just doesn't do it justice. You really need to hear it in person. So you go ahead and head on over and take a listen to part one, and I'll wait right here until you're done, okay? How did it go? Did you love it? Who am I kidding? I already knew you did. Or else you probably wouldn't be back here. But you are back, which means you're officially ready to meet our next guest, who is the head honcho of the Webster Nanomedicine Lab, Professor Thomas Webster himself. On a wonderful sunny Monday morning, I log into the interwebs to chat with Professor Webster, who greets me in his quarantine work clothes, aka pajamas and a bathrobe. How are you doing today? Happy Monday. I'm I'm doing well. How about you? Good. All right. I apologize for my surroundings. I I live in a one bedroom in Somerville and it can be quite noisy at times. So try my best. You look like you're in a little fort. (laughs) Yeah, I am. I have a couple of uh, my hiking (laughs) sticks and blankets propped up to try to conceal all the sound. So, so far it's gone all right. (laughs) Yeah. These days, whatever it takes, right? Yeah. I never anticipated having to interview during quarantines. This is uh, new for me. If you're looking for a good laugh, just picture me sitting cross-legged on my bathroom floor with sticks propped up over my head to form a makeshift teepee and every blanket I own thrown over the top to try and hopefully stop my neighbors from making a guest appearance on the podcast. If you're wondering how that was, I can tell you. It was hot, it was uncomfortable, and it was smelly. Pro tip for me, I would not recommend using a toilet as a laptop stand. Excuse me while I just douse my computer in bleach real quick. But the toilet smell was worth it because I was absolutely psyched to talk to Professor Webster because he's the best of the best when it comes to what he does. In his 20 plus years of experience in science and engineering, Professor Webster has received degrees in both chemical 
and Biomedical Engineering, was an associate professor in the Division of Engineering as well as the Division of Orthopedic Surgery at Brown University, and is currently the director of the Nanomedicine Lab at Northeastern University, where his lab has published scientific articles, books, patents, and even full-blown companies. But even with all these years of experience in science and engineering, you have to go back further in Professor Webster's history to learn how he first discovered his love of science. And honestly, the story is nuts. What got you interested in the field of nanotechnology? Yeah, I think most professors would say it was their PhD thesis that got them interested. So when I look back at why I chose the topic I did for my PhD thesis, I was reminded of when I was six years old, I was hit by a car and I broke the largest bone in my body, in our bodies. Oh my goodness. We were playing this kind of hide and seek, got up, ran across the street and boom, I was hit uh, by a car. So I was in a body cast. This was the summertime, you know, when no six-year-old or nobody really wants to be in a body cast ever. But I was fascinated on how bones can heal. You know, I never needed an implant. I was young enough. The bones were growing, so it healed on its own. And it really got me stimulated into not only medicine, but kind of engineering and how could you build better bone. And I think from that one experience in my life, here I am, what, 43 years later, still looking at the body and how you can engineer better body parts. Wow. How's that for an inspirational story? Picture it. A young boy hit by a car to tragically break his leg, only to watch in awe as his body heals itself, creating a fascination with nature and the healing process so strong that the single experience shapes his life and ultimately his destiny. Man, if this podcasting thing doesn't work out, maybe I can head over to Netflix, give screenwriting a shot. But really, how many people have such a defining moment in their life that inspires the path they choose for years to come? I certainly haven't. When it came to his PhD thesis many years later, Professor Webster chose a research topic in the field of orthopedics, which is the branch of medicine that deals with repairing damaged or malfunctioning bone and muscle tissue. I was looking at new materials to heal bones. Um, of course, as you get older, you're not as lucky as a six-year-old boy and having your bones heal so quickly and return to a normal you know, active lifespan. Many times the elderly population receives an implant, hip implant, knee implant. But even then, and I did my PhD thesis in the late 1990s, and back then, and this still the same true today, is we don't have implants that fully restore functional capability in the orthopedic area. You know, many times they get infected. Many times after 15, 20 years, the, the implant separates from the bone, immediately you can't function, you can't put weight on that implant, so you have to have a revision surgery. So we had an idea, as simple as it sounds, and you know, this is the most simple idea in the world, to look at bone itself and see what is it in bone that we can mimic in these materials, titanium, you know, other kind of metals that we're creating implants out of. And one of the things that we did not see anybody mimicking was the nano structure, the nano nature of our bone itself. You know, in fact, I, I brought some props here. Ooh, so I that's can so show exciting. You. I love props. If I can find the right one, here it is. How awesome is this guy? He brought props to a Zoom interview. Professor Webster literally has dozens of little glass vials sitting next to him as we speak filled with all sorts of different samples that he can use to help explain the research he does. One day, I hope that I have a job that I love so much that no matter where I am, I can pull out props to show people when I talk about the amazing work I do. I'm going to be like that annoying mom that's always showing pictures of her ugly kid to people that never asked, only with science. But Professor Webster definitely wins for today's show and tell. He holds up a small glass vial filled with water, 
Suspended in the water are small white crystals about the size of coarse salt or sand, and almost the same color too. But these particles are way cooler than salt or sand. They are actual nanocrystals that are found in natural bone structures. Nanocrystal bone particles? What? What does that even mean? Have any of you guys ever looked at a bone up close? Like, really up close? Not just with your face pressed up against the glass to look at a skeleton exhibit at some museum? Yeah, me neither. When I imagine what the surface of our bones looked like up close, I always imagined that it looked like the smooth, pristine surface of, say, the china plates your parents have sitting in a cupboard that they will never actually serve food on. But what, are you crazy? We can't get rid of them. Those were your great-grandmother's plates. Turns out that if you were to look at the surface of a bone under one of those super expensive ultra-magnification microscopes, you'd see that the bone surface is actually filled with ridges, holes, random bumps, and jagged edges. It looks more like the cheap plastic plates you've used since you were three years old and deserve to be put to rest years ago, but you keep on abusing them because you're too lazy to buy any other plates, and lord knows you can't choose your great-grandma's fancy-ass china plates. But I digress. So, looking at an actual image of the surface of our bone, much like the example I posted on the podcast's Instagram, which can be found at BOS Science on both Instagram and Twitter, excuse this shameless social media plug, you can see that these nanocrystals make the surface incredibly rough and uneven. So why is it that when we put implants in our body, like the ones made of titanium, these structures are smooth as a baby's bottom? So one of the things we knew, and we knew this a long time ago, that bone itself is made up of these little nanocrystals, but yet when you looked at what we were implanting, nobody was looking at this size range. But we knew when we looked at bone under high power microscopes, you find nanocrystals. So our hypothesis was, would bone grow better on materials that mimic the nano nature of your bone compared to the titanium materials that were implanted at that time. And a lot of people turned this into biologically inspired, right? Or mimicking the body. But back then it was, you know, can we trick bone cells into making bone more on these nano materials than, than micron materials? And you might imagine since we're still doing this research today, only in a much more sophisticated manner, that the answer is yes. You know, bone cells do care and they Absolutely. will regrow bone faster, you know, on these nanomaterials. So my whole thesis, you know, was a, such a positive experience that we came up with an educated guess. We guessed correctly. And really that's turned into a career for me to look at these nanomaterials, not just in bone, but in many different applications. That is very exciting that you're able to take something that you worked on for so long, and it's obvious that you've made huge strides and progress in that field, which is such a great feeling. I hope to get there one day as well. So, you know, and I think so, it's, it's always a dream, right, of somebody in biomaterials, at least the field, you know, that of course I'm in, to take this idea that might seem simple, but you can really change the pathway of, of implants, you know. So I'm also excited not only that this idea worked, but we're commercializing this. And, and this has been approved by the FDA and it's been implanted in thousands of patients. Yep, you heard that correctly. Thousands of patients. This is all thanks to a company that Professor Webster started called Nanovice. Founded in 2009, Nanovice has further developed the work that Professor Webster has done creating nanostructured surfaces to create an entirely new and innovative type of bone implant. These implants are different from the standard titanium implants you might be used to, as the foundation is comprised of a deep porous scaffolding as well as a nanotube-layered surface. Both of these features help to mimic the natural structure of bone and has led to huge improvements in a patient's healing process. In fact, the company was recently awarded Best Nanotechnology Implant Specialists in the USA by Global Pharmaceutical. And the company has celebrated successfully implanting over 2,000 implants. So yeah, this is a big deal. But that's also, you know, really gratifying to know something you spent time on in the lab is actually helping health. 
today. Um, Definitely. Yeah. It's not easy to get from the bench top to the patient bedside. So having anything come out of your lab that can get there is very exciting. You've been at Northeastern Noun for about eight years. Did you have any specific research questions that you were hoping to address when you first started your lab? Yeah, absolutely. So since that time of my PhD thesis and always thinking about how my own femur healed and how can we make that occur with synthetic materials, we moved into other tissues. Obviously, bone is very detrimental, fractures in bones, bone diseases, but that's not the only healthcare problem we have, right? We have problems with cancer. We have problems with infection. We have problems with cartilage. We basically, you know, we looked at the heart, regrowing tissue for the heart. So we really expanded. And the the wonderful thing that occurred throughout my career is it was always the students who would come in They would have not my story of breaking my femur, getting hit by a car, but some other story, you know, their grandmother, their grandfather, their uncle who, you know, suffered a stroke or a heart attack. And they would come in and say, you know, I think there's promise looking at nanomaterials to heal those tissues. And I would say, you know, I remember the first person who came in who wanted to work with cancer. And I said, well, you know, I really don't know much about cancer. I can define it, but I haven't spent my career on cancer. But if you teach me cancer, I'll teach you nanomaterials and we'll see if we can come up with a better approach. And one thing that was amazing is we always found an opportunity for these small materials to help that disease. So we, we always found successful results but I think the, the real big jump at that time, I moved from Brown University to Northeastern. I really wanted to focus my lab, my work on two big areas. One is green nanomedicine. So this whole field we can call nanomedicine. Whenever you use nanomaterials in medicine, the term that has emerged is nanomedicine. And I think unfortunately, you know, when I made these materials back in the day, I had to use chemicals that were a little bit toxic. So my thought was, could we now start looking at natural ways to make these nanoparticles? Our body does it, right? As I mentioned, you know, your bone has nanocrystals of calcium and phosphorus. So our body figures out a way to do it without using toxic chemicals. So we should be able to to do that too. But I also remember reading articles around this time where everybody's aware of this plastic island that's in the Pacific. It has a lot of polymer waste and et cetera. Well, I at least hope you're aware of the trash island floating in our ocean, because it's not exactly new. Since the late 1990s, scientists started to notice accumulation of trash in the ocean, and it's only gotten bigger and badder since then. In fact, there's not just one trash island in our ocean. There are five the largest of which is called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which covers an estimated surface area of 1.6 million square kilometers, or almost 620,000 square miles. To put that in perspective, that's an area twice the size of the state of Texas, and three times the size of France. When the garbage patch was sampled, there was more than 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic counted, which is estimated to weigh about 80,000 tons the equivalent weight of 500 jumbo jets. Oh, God. I just threw up into my mouth a little reading that. How did all this plastic get here? Well, the trouble starts with us, as most things in life do. It happens when you're driving to work and shoving an egg and cheese sandwich in your face while sucking down that extra large iced coffee. You hit traffic, and now you're going to be late to your meeting, and you already have your hands full with the box of Joe and Munchkins you're bringing to try and make up for running late for the 10th week in a row. So you say, meh, whatever, it's just one cup, and toss it out the window while you head on your merry way. That cup gets picked up by the wind and lands in the storm drain, where it travels with the rainwater to a local river as runoff. The cup travels along the river and ends up in the ocean. And since more than half the plastic entering the ocean is more buoyant than water, It travels with the current and ends out at sea and joins our lovely garbage patch in the ocean. Hideous, right? Well, it's not just coffee cups and water bottles ending up in the ocean. Well, 
you know, some of the products that are found there are medical products, catheters, endotracheal tubes, plastics that we use in medicine. Despite that, nobody is really pushing in medicine the use of green technologies. All those reasons really wanted me to look into this area of how can we make nanoparticles in a healthy, non-toxic way. And one of the things we've learned in those eight years is the answer is yes. <laughs> you can use natural materials. You can use cells that make nanoparticles. And they're much healthier for the environment than the chemicals that were originally developed to make these nanomaterials. But the second thing we learned, the material we make naturally is better than the material that's made synthetically, right? And I think this is something we, we just have to keep on pushing that, of course, it's important to save the environment, but equally important is that you can now have an argument that your material is better because we don't have those toxic chemicals that are unreacted in our nanoparticles. We have healthy made particles. So I think that that's a nice little life lesson that you can get out of green technologies. In fact, I can show you another particle. We call this our pink magic. Pink magic, that's a great name. Like <laughs> so this is selenium. So you can see selenium nanoparticles. So selenium is on the periodic table. So it's an element. It is actually an element that's part of our diet. We don't need a lot of it, but we do need some of it. So this is part of this green idea. Can we make natural, healthy chemistries out of materials that are used in our diet? We have developed a way to make selenium nanoparticles. You know, we can add these to infections. We can add these to tumors and they kill those cells. But the other thing that's neat, especially when thinking about viruses and bacteria, is we have a spray for this. So we could spray the computer screen. And because they're nanometer, they don't influence how the computer screen looks or anything that we spray, but they will keep bacteria from attaching and they will keep viruses from attaching. We think there's a real promise for this chemistry of selenium, not only thinking of application of these nanomaterials in the body, but on doorknobs, computer screens, iPhones, not thinking of using bleach on a surface, you know, or isopropyl alcohol every hour, but create that surface itself to reduce contamination and you'll get a lot less spreading. Oh, I love it. I think it's a fantastic idea. You know, this concept of being able to spray these surfaces long-term to help to avoid bacterial or viral attachment it's fantastic. And I absolutely love that it's being worked on. The technologies exist, you know, and a lot of these technologies, these other chemistries that are known to reduce virus, reduce bacteria function. And if we can simply figure out a way, which there are lots of ways to put them on surfaces, you could think of how you stop this spreading of COVID-19 or, or of other bacteria and, and viruses. Oh, hell yeah. The more ways to stop the spread of COVID-19, the better. For those of you listening to this episode 100 years after it's been posted, awesome, glad to see humans haven't kicked the bucket yet. Also, can you tell me when this podcast takes off and becomes a global sensation? And on the off chance that it doesn't, maybe let me know the next winning lotto numbers? Anyway, if for some reason you haven't heard of COVID-19, also known as coronavirus disease of 2019, it's a viral infection that emerged in late December of 2019 and rapidly spread across the world, causing a global pandemic that has literally brought countries to a screeching halt. This virus is spread through airborne transmission. And despite many countries' attempts to limit the spread via face masks, social distancing, and quarantine measures, here we are in September of 2020 with the virus still going strong and no vaccine in sight. So, what are scientists doing to stop the spread of COVID-19? While there are literally thousands of people across the world working on ways of tackling this pandemic, Professor Webster and his lab have their own unique way of trying to stop the spread of the virus. How is your lab involved in the research of COVID-19? So I often think not just for COVID-19, but all of nanomedicine as three categories of technologies nano-structured surfaces being one, right? And we talked about that, you know, at least in terms of medicine, we were able to modify orthopedic implants 
have FDA approval and, and see better bone growth, better health conditions. So the same thing we can think about for COVID-19. Nanotextured surfaces, whether it's putting these selenium nanoparticles on the surface or even just changing the energy of your surface through nanotextures can repel bacteria and repel viruses. So nanotextured surfaces is a key area, especially prevention. The other area, which is what we're commercializing, is what I call nanoparticles. So nanoparticles have been a big part of nanomedicine, especially in the cancer area. And I can show you a gold nanoparticle. Now this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm here for. I was so excited to see these gold nanoparticles up close. Well, as close as you can get on a computer screen. I kept imagining a vial of liquid gold that would glitter and shine, kind of like those glitter pens you see at Target, but instead of plastic flakes, it's gold nanoparticles. So imagine my disappointment when Professor Webster shows me a glass vial filled with an ordinary pink liquid. Seriously, it looks like someone tried to make Kool-Aid but added way too much water, and now everybody has to drink weak-ass watermelon Kool-Aid because Derek couldn't follow the directions. It baffled me, though. How is it that when you take gold, which is literally named because of its color, and break it down and turn them into nanoparticles, all of a sudden it's not gold, but pink? What gives? So I turned to the experts in the field, aka Wikipedia, and the answer will blow your mind. So it turns out that one of the reasons nanotechnology is so cool is because materials, such as selenium or gold in this case, will actually interact with the environment completely differently on the nanoscale than they do on the macro scale. Take, for example, a gold wire, or even smaller than that, gold ink. Both of these materials are commonly used in electronics, because gold is a great conductor for electricity, meaning electricity passes through it really easily. The awesome conductive properties of gold are due to the large number of free electrons surrounding gold ions. So when gold ions are packed together tightly, like you'd find in gold wire or gold ink, the free electrons can easily move from one ion to the next. And, as you all know from listening to Boss Science's first episode, another way of describing electricity is the movement of free electrons. But something interesting happens when you take these gold particles and spread them apart, like in Professor Webster's vial of gold nanoparticles suspended in water. The electrons in the gold nanoparticles will respond to light with something called Localized Surface Plasmon Resonances, or LSPRs for short. If you understood 0% of the words in that term, don't worry, me neither. Basically, LSPRs are these wavelengths of light where electrons in the gold will resonate with the incoming light waves in specific ways. That means when you shine ordinary white light onto these gold nanoparticles, certain electrons in the nanoparticle will reflect a specific wavelength back at you, aka a specific color. What? But guys, I haven't even gotten to the wildest part yet. It turns out that depending on the size of the gold nanoparticles, the LSPRs of the nanoparticles will be different, meaning that each nanoparticle size will reflect a different color. So small gold nanoparticles that are about 10 nanometers wide will appear pink or red in color, while larger gold nanoparticles that are about 100 nanometers in size will appear blue or purple. I told you, mind-blowing. I take back my initial disappointment with the gold nanoparticles, because color-changing nanoparticles are way cooler than glitter pens from Target. And gold nanoparticles aren't just cool to look at. They can do some absolutely fantastic things. So here's some gold nanoparticles. These are great nanoparticles because they can respond to infrared wavelengths to heat up. So if you were able to get this into a cancerous tumor in your body, you then subjected the tumor to infrared, they would heat up. Cancer cells are much more sensitive to heat than healthy cells. So voila, you have a way to selectively kill cancer cells rather than chemotherapy, which kills everything. So we just simply took that idea and use it for a virus. So COVID-19 is about 120 nanometers in dimension. Some of these particles that we can create gold out of are 20, 25 
nanometers in diameter. So they're smaller than the virus. So the key is, okay, how do I get this to attach to COVID in here? Fortunately, a lot of virology experts have identified the structure of COVID-19 and we can go towards S proteins, the little spikes that stick out of the virus, and we can design a chemistry, attach it to these pretty easily to then attach to the virus. So if you do that, then same idea, have infrared excite these nanoparticles, they heat up, and a virus actually is slightly easier, we have seen, to disrupt its structure under increases in heat than a cancer cell. You guys ready for another nano fact that's going to blow your mind? So Professor Webster mentioned that it's easier to kill a virus using heat than it is to kill a cell using heat. And this is largely due to their difference in their size. So let's do another size analogy. One of my favorite things to do, if you haven't noticed. If a nanoparticle were about the size of a football, a virus would be about as big as a person. But a cancer cell, on the other hand, would be the size of a football field. So yeah, big difference in size. Since we're using heat to disrupt a virus or cell's membrane, and this disruption in the membrane is what kills the organism, you can imagine how much more heat it would take to break down something the size of a football field compared to something the size of a person, which makes gold nanoparticles an easy choice for tackling viruses. So that whole idea that's used in cancer therapy could be used to deactivate a virus. And if you change the structure of a virus, it then cannot attach to a cell membrane, it can't enter the cell, and it can't replicate. We have seen the ability to do this with other viruses. So one of the challenges is, yeah, we can create these in uh, minutes. The chemistry is well established. We can make these naturally too, not synthetically, but how do we test this? There are mimics of viruses that a university can use. So we're testing these materials on a mimic of COVID-19, right? And, and that's important because it gives us good information, but it's not the real thing. Yeah, the other category of nanomaterials, you know, the family's nanotextures, nanoparticles. The third one, which is the one we're licensing to a company who's commercializing it right now, are self-assembled materials. And this is a fascinating area of nanomedicine, right? And there are a number of groups doing this around the world where you create chemistries synthetically, you add them to bodily fluids, and they will assemble in a predefined way. We have a couple that we've investigated throughout my career. We've been using them for tissue engineering, but we did notice you can take some of the same functional groups that you put on these gold nanoparticles, you can put on these self-assembled materials, and the self-assembled material can attach to the virus, COVID-19. It can wrap itself around the virus, kind of like a blanket, and keep the virus from attaching to a cell. I know we're talking about ways of stopping a deadly virus, but honestly, the only thing I can picture when I think of these self-assembling materials is when I have to get my cat into the cat carrier so I can bring her to the vet. It's a delicate process, you see, because my cat would apparently rather die than be put into a carrier. So, to try and not get absolutely decimated by my cat and her claws, what I do is I corner her in a room, throw a towel over her, and then wrap her up like a fuzzy, shrieking burrito. It's not always effective, but you know, it's better than nothing because god damn it, Cheddar, you need to go to the vet. <sighs> Hopefully... The self-assembling materials that Professor Webster is talking about is a little more effective than my cat burrito technique. And we've used computational modeling to really show the efficacy of this approach. And we're able to model that to narrow down the thousands of functional groups that you could study to five that could be tested in a controlled experiment. But one of the other problems you have in this field is mutations. We are targeting something that mutates very quickly. So our target is changing. So how do you deal with that, right? And I think coronaviruses are a great example of these viruses that mutate a lot. So what we can do in these nanoparticles or self-assembled material approach is go after three 
four different regions on the virus so that you minimize the chance of one mutation not allowing your molecule to attach to it or not allowing your nanoparticle to attach to it. In the same molecule having multiple functional groups, what we've seen is you can really design around a mutation because normally you don't get everything to mutate. You just get a subset of the virus to mutate. So you're still able to attach and create this blanket or create this nanoparticle to attach to the virus to use photothermal therapy to disrupt its structure. The other thing we love about some of these molecules is their biocompatibility. In these self-assembled molecules, for example, we have years of animal data showing when we inject into the body, it's safe. This is not an approach that you're killing the virus at the same time, you're killing all these other things in the body. We really are developing a safe material that can be used in the body. So right now, the, the company, um, Audix, who is licensing these um, outside of Boston, is pursuing the, the testing regime you know, that we need to really get commercial success and, and hopefully have some kind of solution rather than waiting until 2021 for a vaccine to be developed. Do you know how close it is until this technology is on the market? Yeah, I think we're still inhibited by that testing of the real virus step. You know, the molecule is safe. It's been well tested. We know how to attach it to a virus. So it's the verification, right? It's that last part <laughs> that is so important. We all have colleagues in hospitals or CDC or places that can test it. But guess what? They're getting bombarded with requests right? They don't even have time to check their email. That's how many requests they're getting from collaborators. So I had guessed that it wouldn't be very easy to work with the COVID-19 virus. But I thought for sure in Boston, with all its world-class universities, hospitals, biotech companies, we'd have more opportunities to work with the virus than other places. Well, to understand who can work with the COVID-19 virus, you have to understand how science labs are set up to deal with biological hazards, such as COVID-19. Scientists are often working with potentially dangerous agents or organisms, so the number one priority in a lab is the researcher's safety. All research labs have a series of safeguards in place designed to protect lab personnel as well as the surrounding environment and community. These are referred to as biological safety levels, or BSL for short. There are four different biosafety levels that a lab can have, depending on the type of materials that the lab works with. Basic labs that work with non-lethal agents or low-risk organisms with little threat of infection are classified as BSL-1. These low-risk lab spaces don't need any special containment equipment. Researchers can work right on the benchtop with only minimal personal protective equipment needed, like gloves, safety glasses, and a lab coat. However, Labs that work with extremely dangerous, highly infectious, and frequently fatal organisms require the highest level of protection and are classified as BSL-4. These are the labs that you see in movies, like the movies where there's a deadly virus spreading across the world and nobody knows how to stop it. Sound familiar? Researchers working in these labs have to change out of their clothes and into a full-body, air-supplied, and positive-pressure biosuit before even entering the lab. And then they have to fully shower and decontaminate all materials before leaving. These labs are not joking around. In real life, there are only 15 BSL-4 labs in the United States. And, fun fact, one of them is at the National Emerging Infectious Disease Laboratory right here at Boston University. What, what? Go Terriers! So where does COVID-19 research fall in the wide range of BSL labs? Turns out this research is done in BSL-3 labs, along with work on other deadly diseases like yellow fever, West Nile virus, and tuberculosis. And according to a 2007 U.S. Government Accountability Office report, there are a total of 1,300 BSL-3 labs in the United States, with only seven of them being in Boston. I imagine working in a BSL-3 lab during a pandemic is a bit like being an accountant during tax season. Most of the time, nobody really thinks twice about you, but now all of a sudden, everybody wants to be your best friend. For real though, with hundreds of thousands of people across the world working on different strategies to fight the COVID-19 virus, not everyone will get the chance to test their idea on the real deal. 
So we've been reaching out to a lot of colleagues of ours at the CDC, Johns Hopkins, some other labs that can test the real virus. As soon as we have a strong connection, we'll be able to generate data really quickly. Well, that's certainly good news because I'm sure we all want this technology on the market ASAP. But it's important to remember that when it comes to science, you have to be very careful when you finally say something is safe to put into the human body. Because if you're not sure, there can be disastrous consequences. Professor Webster understands that point and has no intention of cutting corners to get his product on the market. A lot of people think we only talk about the positives with nanomedicine, but there are some strong cautions. And this is a good example. When you're dealing with particles, you have to make sure they're not going to the liver, the kidney, passing the blood-brain barrier, which also has nanometer dimensions in it. So you really have to pay very close attention to unintended accumulation of these particles. And what will it do? You do have to pay very close attention to these organs in our body that are meant to filter out these unknown chemicals that we're not creating a problem. So those kind of studies, we often call those biodistribution studies, uh, stability studies. We have to do still all of those for this COVID-19 work. But I would say I'm, I'm so happy as with everything we've done in the past, once you have a commercial partner for an academic, things accelerate. But once you have that commercial partner who knows how to get FDA approval, who knows how to commercialize things, how to scale up, it really accelerates the process. So we're we're optimistic. Well, I'm very optimistic too. That is very exciting stuff. So I know you discussed that there's multiple ways that it can be used to stop the virus from infecting. And I was wondering, is this something where you would have to administer it in the body? Would mm. it be something you would spray on a surface? Uh, how would it work? Yeah. So obviously with something like COVID-19, which is respiratory, and fortunately people have done this before we came along, but it is relatively straightforward to aerosolize nanoparticles. First of all, they're small, <laughs> so that's easy, but the technology in the, in the drug community has been looking at inhaled drugs for quite a long time. It's obviously very easy to inhale a drug compared to injecting a drug or even taking it orally. So inhalation drug therapy is almost the gold standard. So for something that's internal, I do think aerosolizing these particles, the aerosolizing these self-assembled molecules is the way to go. But I do think there is a great promise to spray these materials onto surfaces. Spraying selenium, for example, we've seen without photothermal activation works, but certainly you could envision a gold spray onto a surface and you just subject that surface to infrared. The end of the day or every hour, whatever the time frequences, you then cause the gold nanoparticles that are on the surface to heat up to then deactivate something that might have absorbed during that day. So the field of nanoparticles for prevention, for diagnosis, for therapy, I think is, is very strong. It's very promising. Definitely. There's a lot of different areas that you can use these nanoparticles for. And even just getting one area up and running would, I think, make such a huge yeah. contribution to this. For real, though, Professor Webster talked about so many amazing potential ways to stop the spread of COVID-19. I would use any one of those ideas in a heartbeat. You know, after we're sure it won't accidentally kill me. If you guys are interested in hearing about even more of the crazy and ingenious ways that Boston scientists are working on stopping this pandemic, check out the Boston Science Soundbite episode, COVID-19, to hear all about it. It's awesome that Professor Webster and his lab members are committed to helping find an end of COVID-19. But that's not the only goals for the lab. There are some bigger questions that Professor Webster hopes to achieve in the long term. The other thing I wanted to work on when moving to Northeastern is really creating implantable sensors. To give, again, the orthopedic example, the hip implant that you would get today, it has no ability to tell you whether there's bacteria on the surface, whether bone is growing, whether there's a little crack that's formed in the bone surrounding the implant. There's no information, but think about it. If there was, how much of a better implant you could have. 
So one of the things we're doing, and, and we call it, how's my hip? Because what the hip implant does, we've grown a sensor off of the hip implant. Carbon nanotubes are what we use as the sensor. So it's almost like little blades of grass that come off of the surface, the carbon nanotubes. That measures the electrical properties of the cell and tissue that attach to the surface of the implant. So based on that, we can tell inside your body if you have a bacteria that has attached to your implant, did it get into the surgery, you know, crawl from your skin into the, the implant, and now it's, it's growing uncontrolled. One of the other reasons that hip implants fail is you get too much inflammation. You know, your body wants to reject it, which our bodies are trained to do. But here we have an implant that we don't want it to be rejected. So it can determine if all those cells that are part of your immune system have attached. Or hopefully it would determine if a bone cell attaches and grows bone. All of those different cells and tissues have different electrical properties in which the carbon nanotubes tell us that information. So what we can do and what we have been doing is take that information send it to your electronic device or something outside of the body, then your device interprets that signal to tell your surgeon, but you basically have a real time gathering of information, what's happening surrounding your implant while you're exercising, while you're lying in bed overnight, while you're you know, having those Doritos on your lazy boy. <laughs> oh yeah, Professor Webster gets it. I'd be a liar if I said I didn't have a bag of sweet spicy chili Doritos in my pantry just waiting for me to come home and snuggle up with me on the couch. If anything, Professor Webster knows his target audience. Anytime during the day you're collecting this information about how well is your hip implant doing. And then the third thing that we've incorporated into this idea is to have external control over drug release from the implant. I'm not a big antibiotic fan, but maybe we want to release selenium nanoparticles from the surface of the implant on demand to kill those bacteria. Or if this were a cancer patient in which a bone tumor was removed and implant was put in, maybe we want to release a nanoparticle to kill the return of bone cancer. Or maybe everything looks like it's going well and we don't want to do anything at all. So we have the ability gather information, more information for the clinician, have a response in real time that can ensure the success of that material. So I love this idea, right? And we've been working on this every year that, that I've been at Northeastern, but it's a biggie. You know, I think we're in this for the long haul, right? To get this approved by the FDA. That's amazing. You know, that's fantastic that you've been able to get so many things approved by the FDA. I understand, you know, I don't personally have uh, experience of putting anything into the market, but from what I understand, it is not an easy process. So congrats to you there. That is very exciting that you've been able to uh, work on these specific areas and make such progress in them. But, you know, as you said, it's a long process, you know, there's lots of steps. And I'm curious, what would you hope to see your lab accomplish in the long term? You know, end of your life, you're looking back, you, what would you hope to say that your lab has done? I think it's creating better, smarter materials. You know, I, I'm reminded in this difficult time of COVID-19, our healthcare system has been dependent on hospitals. It's been dependent on people going somewhere to get a diagnosis and then perhaps going somewhere else to get a treatment. I think that's not the future. So technologies that can bring the hospital to you are the future, right? And I described one for sensors. If you received an implantable sensor on your hip implant, you would just have to go into a hospital to get the implant. But every follow-up procedure, every diagnostic assessment is all done at home. It gets away from this, I think, archaic vision that you have to have this concrete building that says emergency room, you know, orthopedics, go to the left. It brings the hospital to you. And if we can do that, we improve patient care. You know, there are so many studies out there where patients, a certain population, are afraid to go into hospitals. This is where the bacteria are, the germs are, right? So 
we have to admit there are always going to be people who are afraid of going into a hospital, but yet they need healthcare like the rest of us. And wearable sensors are getting us down this path. I'm someone who all the time uses my app to count my steps, right? <laughs> and I, I do a little dance when I get to 10,000. Oh yeah, you have the little buzz and you're like, oh, that's <laughs> it, I got my 10K. I'm with you, I'm there too. So it started and certainly wearable sensors are wonderful, but we're focused on internal sensors because you can get so much more information obviously from, from inside the body. We have the technology in the material science field to incorporate those things into one approach that really can change human health, you know, and benefit human health in ways that, you know, I think we're, we're about to see over the next 10 years, how much this bringing the hospital to the patient approach will revolutionize medicine. Oh, so I hope, you know, in this next phase of, of research in my life to make a contribution towards implantable sensors, approaches that can both detect and use therapy to reverse an event in the body that you might, not, you might not even know is a problem. But I'm excited for the day that people can have real-time monitoring of their health in the body, and we're able to detect a problem before it necessitates going to a hospital or having 24-7 healthcare. That would be the ultimate goal. I do love this idea of bringing the hospital to the patient. I think it could help to significant amounts of people who may not have access to a hospital the way that we do and who would otherwise not go if uh, unless right. they had it for them. I definitely agree. There's a lot of people who, whether it's fear or lack of time or just lack of understanding of how disease works, they have no interest in going to the doctors or to the hospital you know, I, for one, was very nervous about going to hospitals when I was younger and almost broke my fingers oh, really? <laughs> from an accident and for almost a month told nobody because I was so nervous about going to the hospital. No joke, guys. This is actually a true story. I was legitimately terrified of hospitals when I was younger. Just doctors, needles, blood, everything. I liked none of it. So, flashback to nine-year-old Grace, who... Somehow always got roped into helping dad do all the construction of the extension on our house. Yay, free child labor. And for some reason, he decides to give me the staple gun. First mistake, dad. That thing was heavy and I was not a strong child. So inevitably, my arms get tired, I'm not paying attention, and I drop this 15-pound power tool right onto my fingers. Oh my god, guys, it was awful. It took everything in me not to scream right there. And then it took even more to pretend nothing happened and go to bed. Let me tell you, the aftermath was not cute. Multiple fingers, completely black and blue. Swollen up so large, they literally looked like breakfast sausages. I could barely move my fingers for weeks, which made going to school, and of course, helping my dad with construction, not too easy. But I never said a word to my parents. Never! Why? because I would rather lose my fingers than possibly have to go to the hospital. So yeah, sorry mom and dad that you have to find out that one story through the podcast, but look, I turned out okay. All ten fingers and toes still accounted for, I promise. But enough about me and my childhood trauma. It's time for what you guys are all really here for, your listener questions. For those of you who don't know, before I sit down to chat with all these wicked smart scientists you hear on the show... I give you guys the chance to take a look at the research and come up with your very own questions that I ask on your behalf. With so many awesome research topics being studied at Professor Webster's lab, you guys had a bunch of questions ready for me. And oh my god, guys, your questions are so good. I love the stuff you come up with, and Professor Webster absolutely loves them too. So the first listener question, they ask, since nanoparticles are so small and can go anywhere in the body, how can they be tracked where they go and understand if they're creating unintended problems into other parts of the body? Absolutely. Wonderful question. And this is, you know, hitting the nail on the head with one of the problems with nanoparticles. See, told you he liked them. The problem the FDA regulatory agencies has is unintended locations, right? Are they going to places you don't want them to go? And that is a huge problem with nanotechnologies. 
You can actually, though, determine experimentally, depending on the chemistry, where they go in the body. If they're not natural to your diet, like gold, we do have very sophisticated tools that can determine, did gold go into your kidney? Did it go into your liver? And it can do it at a very, very small concentration. The problem is if you're looking at chemistries that are part of your diet, selenium, right, that we talked about. So if selenium is there because you ate it versus we put it in there, it's hard for us to determine where it came from. It's an absolutely wonderful question. I think we're partly there for determining these non-natural chemistries, but we need a lot better techniques to determine the presence of natural chemistries and where they are in the body. Okay. Well, it's great to know that there are some solutions and still working on others. The next question was, um, how close are we to being able to use nanoparticles as a way to monitor our body or metabolic and chemical responses to environmental inputs such as eating, stress, or exercise? Yeah, excellent. I think we're pretty close. Again, always needs more research. We need regulatory approval. But one of the things that we know nanoparticles can do quite well is regulate reactive oxygen species. So reactive oxygen species are a big threat to our health, but there are so many fascinating nanoparticles. In fact, here's cerium, cerium oxide. It kind of looks like milk a little bit. This can pick up reactive oxygen species. It changes state. So we can determine if it's actually absorbed a lot of reactive oxygen species in your body. And if it is, then we know you have too much reactive oxygen species and you need to exercise more or you need to take more vitamins. You know, you need to reduce the number of your reactive oxygen species. So I think we're very close. You know, to put a time frame to it, I would not be surprised if in five years we start having a menu of nanoparticles that could be used in your body to determine different disease states. That would be absolutely amazing. All right, five years. I'll hold you to that. <laughs> uh, oh, that's very cool, though. I'm excited. So next question they had was, can nanoparticles be programmed to go in and clean up stuff in the body that are causing trouble, such as amyloid plaques or toxins? Absolutely. These nanoparticles are so small. They have such large surface area that you can think of them as sponges for a lot of toxins that are in your body. The key question is, how do you get them out quickly? You know, one of the things which we can use as an advantage, but it's also a disadvantage of nanoparticles, is your immune system does not recognize some of these particles. So it does not clear them from your body. That's great for drug delivery, because you can have a nanoparticle going around your body for weeks, delivering a drug slowly, that you need for a certain disease. But you know, for this kind of an application, what if you want it out? What if it's carrying all of these toxic things and you want it to go out of your body? How do you do that, right? And, and real quick example, these iron oxide nanoparticles, they will be recognized by your body if they start clumping together. So if you can get them to attach to each other, once they've picked up a lot of these toxins, now they're large enough that your immune system can recognize it and clear it. Very cool. That's a very unique way of clearing nanoparticles. I never thought about that. That's very cool. Awesome. So the last two questions I'll ask, one of them, this one is related back to the COVID treatment. And they ask, if you send a nanoparticle after a virus, how do you know what other stuff the same size is going to react with? Yeah, great question. So that's because you've functionalized the nanoparticle too specifically attached to the virus. So you have to make sure that the the region you're putting on the nanomaterial exclusively will direct it towards the virus and nothing else, no other protein, no other cell. And you increase your chances if you do what we discussed before, and that is go after three or four different regions on the virus. So the more regions you can go after, the more selective your nanoparticle can be towards the virus. But you really have to do the research to prove that it is exclusively going to the virus and not some off-target site. That initial research is really the most important part. I can definitely understand that. Awesome. All right, so this last question, this was specifically directed for you, the director of the lab. 
this listener noticed since your lab has multiple research goals in both basic scientific understanding versus product or clinically oriented research, they were wondering, how do you determine the allocation of resources and staff between these related but separate goals? And then just to follow up on that question would be, to what extent does source of funding determine the allocations? Yeah, this is a great question and something you struggle with almost every week or every day. (laughs) So I would say when I started my career, the funding and the interest was towards application, application, application. Let's get a new implant. Let's get it FDA approved. Let's help patients. There was such a little emphasis on why. Why does that work? Why are cells making more bone on nano features? Why can you reduce bacteria on nano features? So that's what we did. We did have a lot of questions that came up and we would say to these funding sources, well, we can't make a material better unless we know how it works. But the interesting thing throughout my career is I would say in the past five years, industry has really been asking the question, why? And I think that the the reason is because we understood, you know, many years ago that these nano features can also reduce bacteria infection without using a drug. So the big thing when we submitted these to regulatory agencies, they said, well, you're not using a drug, so how is this working? You know, it was counterintuitive that it was a non-antibiotic approach, so how are your nanoparticles, nanomaterials working? So in a sense, it was the questions from our regulatory agencies themselves that got funding for us from industry, from you know, our government agencies to look at the why. So I, I feel like we're pretty balanced now. We understand we want to apply these, we wanna make materials, we wanna help human health as fast as possible, but we understand we can't do that unless we know why it's working. And like I said, knowing why something works helps you make it even better for the next bacteria for the next virus that comes along. Ah, the incredibly delicate but also important balance in science between the questions, why does it work? And who cares? Hooray, it works. You guys asked some absolutely awesome questions. Please keep them coming. You make me look so good out there. I like it. But I had one last question to ask Professor Webster before I go. And don't laugh at how dated it seems now. This podcasting thing is not as quick and easy as you may think it is. So this is a a Boston-based podcast, and I always like to ask a little Boston-specific question at the end. Um, Since we're right in the middle of spring and stuck inside and can't go anywhere, I wanted to ask, where in Boston do you most enjoy being during the spring? I'm going to say it's a little bit outside of Boston. I'm a huge soccer fan. So I'm going to have to say it's in Foxborough watching the New England Revolution. <laughs> in fact, what I've been doing these days is watching the games, the MLS Cup from 2002, 2003, that the Revolution were in. They lost those games. Oh, no. <laughs> but I think it's, it's being outside, you know, watching soccer, cheering with people. I, that's what I really miss the most. Yeah, definitely. So it's hard not being with all of our fans and our, our friends and coworkers, but hopefully we'll get back to it soon enough. That's so. right. <laughs> well, that didn't happen. Looks like we still have some waiting to do, my friends. But remember, even if you can't be with your friends, family, and loved ones, you'll always have me. Thank you guys for listening to another thrilling episode of Boss Science. It may have taken a while to come out, but it was worth the wait. If you loved today's episode as much as I did, please do me the biggest favor in the world and rate and review the show. It's been a rough few months, guys. I could really do with a little internet love. Just one review, please. I'm so tired of crying. Please help me give an enormous thank you to today's guest, Professor Thomas Webster. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and to hear all about the amazing work you and your lab mates are doing. If you want to read more about the nano-featured implants, green nanotechnology, virus-killing nanoparticles, or any of the other topics discussed on the show, you can check out the lab website and links to the articles in today's show notes. If you want to see photos of the amazing nanocrystals and nanoparticles I mentioned earlier, you can check out the show's Instagram or Twitter at BOS Science. 
If you want to reach out to say hi, submit your listener questions, recommend a lab or guest for an upcoming show, you can email me at bosciencepodcast at gmail.com. And guys, I won't be offended if you just send me pictures of, like, your dog wearing sunglasses or your cat in a fedora. Honestly, anything would make my day. So I'll leave you guys. I know you're eager to run off and find your pet and some accessories to put them in. I'll see you all on the next episode of Boss Science, where I talk to some wicked smart people and learn about some boss-ass science. Bye! Thank you.